Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we are still with Count Ugolino. If you're just dropping into this podcast at this episode, <laughs> good grief, there's a lot of stuff behind us, including two previous episodes about Count Ugolino, the last great sinner, Dante the Pilgrim, and his guide Virgil encounter in their descent through hell to the center of the earth. We're at Canto 33, and we are at lines 1 through 78. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can print it off, you can make notes, and you can even there drop a comment. Let me tell you just a moment about what's about to happen in this episode of the podcast. Usually, I read the passage and then have a large commentary on whichever passage of Inferno we've been talking about at that particular moment. In this episode, I want to do things a little bit differently. I've read you the Ugolino speech twice already in the previous two podcasts. And this time, what I want to do is I want to read it and comment about it as we move through. I'm going to be talking about its place in Christian theology. And this might seem a tad esoteric, but once I point out how this speech is filled with references to the Gospels in the New Testament, I don't think you can see it in any other way. Now, this seems like a very odd thing because what Ugolino speaks seems incredibly secular. He's nailed up in this tower. His children starve to death. I mean, it all seems very, what I want to say, non-religious. He even calls out to the earth, not to God, to save them. Why didn't the earth open up and swallow them? So how can this secular speech be so full of resonances from the Gospels of the New Testament? Let me say, one thing before we get started. I'm not assuming that you know anything about Christian theology, about the Gospels. I'm going to do my best to explain it slowly as we go through. I don't want to make assumptions that you know the resonances and references going on here, so I'm going to be careful to try to point them out. Let me just back up and say there are four Gospels in the New Testament— Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament, the basic Christian scriptures. There are four Gospels. The New Testament is codified, well, (laughs) twice, really, to be honest with you. It's codified at the Council of Hippo in 393 Common Era. It's again codified as the 27 books we know at the Council of Carthage in 397. And then Pope Innocent I accepts the list of the 27. 27 canonical books that Christians now call the New Testament in 405 Common Era. So we are talking approximately four centuries after Jesus was born— The New Testament is codified into its current shape, and you may know that that is actually still, in fairly recent past, still been a subject of contention because Martin Luther, the, what do I want to say, the spark behind the Protestant Reformation, actually wanted to throw some books out of the New Testament. So believe it or not, even in relatively modern times, this has still been a subject of debate. There are many other Gospels besides the four that are found in the New Testament. And Gospel is from the Greek word euangelion, which simply means good news. Gospel is 
good news. It is the good news in the life story of Jesus. So the four Gospels are four biographies of Jesus, and we're going to be particularly dealing with three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are called the synoptic Gospels because they present a very similar story. John is the outlier in the group who presents a very different story of Jesus's life. These synoptic Gospels run underneath Ugolino's speech. Now, that already seemed like a lot of information, so let's just take it slowly. I'm going to read the speech, and we're going to talk about how it works in Christian theology. Starting at line one, raising his mouth from his savage meal and wiping it on the hair of the head he'd been gnawing from behind, the sinner, that is Ugolino, began. We're going to come back to this concept of meal. Just remember, this is his dinner. This will become important as we talk about the theology of the passage. The sinner began, You wish me to renew the despairing sorrow that already presses down on my heart just by thinking about it even before I tell it. We talked in the last episode of this podcast about how that line, those three lines, are a reference both back to Francesca da Ramini in Canto V, Among the Lustful, and a reference to Aeneas as he starts the tale of his flight from Troy. Moving on in Ugolino's speech. Well, if my words will be the seeds which become the fruits of infamy for the traitor that I munch, you'll see me cry and speak at the same time. This is our first New Testament reference. There seems to be a reference here to the parable of the sower that Jesus tells. Let me back up and explain. A parable is a moral story, sort of like Aesop's fables. Jesus tells a series, many parables, over the course of his life, according to the Gospels. And these parables are kind of moral fables. They're moral stories about how to behave in the world. This is a reference to the parable of the sower. You can find that in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, or the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, or the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. It's the story of a man who goes out to sow seed. And Jesus tells this story to explain to his disciples that not everyone is going to accept the good news of salvation that you're about to bring them. He tells this story of a sower who casts his seed around. Some of it falls on rocky ground. Some of it falls on ground that's good but gets eaten by the birds. And some of it falls falls on good soil, germinates, and eventually bears an abundance of fruit or more seeds. The point of this parable is that you, as my disciples, are supposed to go out and cast the seed, the good news of salvation that I'm preaching, but don't worry that some people will not accept it. Some people can't hear it. Sometimes it gets eaten up by birds, and some people hear it. You'll Notice that when Ugolino brings up the question of seeds and fruit, he seems to believe that his seeds will bear fruit. 
Jesus, in his parable, seems to indicate that a great deal, maybe even the majority of the seed, never bears fruit. Ugolino, in a perversion of the parable of the sower, believes that the seed he's going to sow here will indeed bear the fruits of infamy for Archbishop Ruggieri. You should also know that there's another little bit running underneath this passage, and it's a bit from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me explain this. In the Gospel of Matthew from chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches a sermon that is considered by most Christians to be the core of Jesus's philosophy and theology. It's basically about keeping the peace doing good, not showing off in public with your righteousness, not throwing your alms out in public so that people see how generous you are, not praying in public so people see how pious you are, rather keeping your own religious sentiments quiet and doing good in the world, healing, making sure that you are loving your neighbor. It's this kind of core statement, Matthew 5 through 7, of Jesus's theology. And at Matthew 7, verse 20, Jesus drops the line, by their fruits, you shall know them. In fact, we do know Ugolino and Ruggieri by their fruits. This has borne the fruit of their traitorous and wretched lives. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, all that bit about, oh, I don't know, about praying in in private and blessed are the peacemakers. And, you know, when people strike you, blessed are you if you forgive them. That's a paraphrase of the verse. But all of that in the Sermon on the Mount, that's sitting underneath this speech because Ugolino specifically violates every time the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. He performs this speech. He is out with his outrage in public. He is trying to get a response out of the Pilgrim Dante and out of the reader, too. This is not a private act of contrition, and he certainly does not love his neighbor. Instead, he eats him. Moving on in the passage, Ugolino says, I don't know who you are, nor in what manner you made your way down here, but sure enough, it seems to me you're a Florentine when I hear your voice. You've got to know I was Count Ugolino and that this one is Archbishop Ruggieri. Now I'll tell you why I'm his neighbor. Oh, we're back to another gospel reference from the New Testament. This is a reference to a passage found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, and in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. And let me tell you this story. Basically, the rabbis or the teachers of the day come up to Jesus and they try to trap him. They ask him, which is the greatest commandment? What they're doing here is they're seeing that Jesus is preaching a kind of political and social gospel about wealth, about giving up all that you own to the poor and following him, about being poor in spirit, about being meek, 
Jesus is teaching, uh, well, for lack of a better word, and to use a very modern phrase, a social gospel. And the rabbis, who are theologically astute, want to catch him. Because if you know anything about Jewish law, you know that it's founded on the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. They form the very backbone of the Jewish law. And then there are many, hundreds, hundreds of more laws given to Moses across Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as Christians call it. Many, many laws, dietary laws, religious holiday laws, etc. But any good practicing Jew would say that the top commandment, the number one, is the number one in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God but me before you. That God is God and that this is the only God you worship. That is the foundational monotheistic statement that gives rise to the Jewish religion probably gives rise to the Christian religion and, by extension, wow, this is a little bit deadly, but may give rise to the Islamic religion, too. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't monotheistic religions on earth that predate the Jewish faith. There are, in fact. And I'm not saying that this is the first statement in human history of monotheism. I'm saying that this is the monotheistic underpinning of what becomes the Jewish faith and ultimately the Christian faith. And the rabbis are expecting him to say this, but he doesn't. He jumps out to a rather obscure law buried down in Torah, buried down elsewhere inside the law given to Moses. And Jesus says the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That is radical because basically what you're saying is, okay, there's the Ten Commandments, great. But the real big commandment is found buried down there elsewhere in Torah about loving God completely. And then Jesus follows it up and says, and there's a second commandment that is almost as great. In fact, it follows right on in Torah. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is underlying this passage. It's being ripped apart by Ugolino's teeth. He does not love his neighbor as himself. But if you think about it, there's a weird and wild ironic twist here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Ugolino is loving Ruggieri the way he loves himself. Remember, later in the speech, Ugolino will chew on himself inside the tower from hunger, and his children will stand up and say, oh, father, eat us, strip the flesh off us. Remember this bit? (laughs) So he is indeed loving Ruggieri as he loved himself. He's eating Ruggieri in the way that he chewed on himself. (laughs) Such complex irony underneath a Christian statement of ethics. Let's set on in the passage. That the final result of his evil reckonings, despite my trust in him, was that I was seized and put to death. There is no need to tell all that. But there's no way you could be able to learn how cruel my death was. Listen up and figure out if he wronged me. And now we descend to the story of exactly how Ugolino died. A little peephole in the Hawk's Mew, we talked about this two episodes ago, that's now called by the name of Hunger on account of me and in which others are yet to be shut up, had already shown me through its slit several waxing 
and waning moons when I had a nightmare that tore open the veil of the future for me. Oh, another big New Testament reference. The veil of the future. This is a reference to the moment when Jesus dies. When Jesus dies in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 through 51, and again in the Gospel of Mark at chapter 15, verse 38, when Jesus takes his last breath, the veil of the temple is torn in two in the Gospel story. What does that mean? There is a temple that has the basis of the Jewish sacrificial rites going on in around it. There is a veil that stands between the main part of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, where allegedly the actual copies of the law from Moses are kept. That veil is ripped in the gospel story at the moment of Jesus's death to say the way to the Ark of the Covenant, the way to God's own presence, God was said to sit over the Ark of the Covenant. The way to God's own presence is now opened up. This is some kind of infernal perversion of that in which the veil is ripped, but it is the veil of Ugolino's own fate. In the Gospels, it's the, the veil is ripped for global salvation. Well, let me just put it that way. L- l- listen, again, I am not a practicing Christian. I do not hold to this theology. I'm trying to explain a theology that lies under this passage. And in Christian theology, when that veil is ripped— The global salvation is now accessible to all. Here, when the veil is ripped, Ugolino only sees himself. A perversion of another time the veil was ripped for much more redemptive reasons. Moving on in the passage. This one appeared to be the master and the Lord tracking the wolf and its cubs over the mountain that obscures Luca from the Pisans, driving lean, eager, and trained dogs. He had Gualandi along with Sismondi and Lanfranchi arrayed out in front of him. We've talked about this nightmare several times and why it's such an interesting little note in the text. And we're going to come back to it in the last episode on Ugolino, which is up next. Anyway, moving on in the nightmare. After a short round, the father and his sons, that's the wolf and his cub were worn out. It seemed to me, in other words, in the nightmare I thought I saw, that the flesh was torn from their haunches with razor-sharp fangs. When I woke up a little before daylight, I heard the cries of my own sons who were locked up with me and asking for some bread in their dreams. You have to stop. Bread is so crucial to the Christian ritualistic theology because it is the center of the Eucharist, or as some Protestants call it, communion. These children are crying out for bread because in the end, the entire speech is a perversion of the Eucharist of eating the body of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 19, or in Matthew, chapter 26, verse 26, Jesus is celebrating what has come to be known as the Last Supper with his disciples, but which is really a Passover meal. When he picks up the matzah and breaks it and hands it out at the Passover meal, what Jesus says is, this is my 
body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, take, eat. This is my body. These little kids are crying out for bread as if they're crying out to their father, do you see the Christian Trinitarianism? As if they're crying out to their father for bread, Ugolino has none to give. There starts here a wild perversion of the Eucharist. Well, it doesn't start here. It starts at the beginning of the passage. Savage meal. He is eating the body of of another, just as Jesus instructed his disciples to do when they want to remember him. Ugolino goes on, you are truly cruel if you're not already suffering at the things my heart was predicting for me. We have to pause right here. The word he uses in the medieval Florentine is annunziava. That word annunziava, you can already hear it annunciation. It's hard not to see the annunciation of the birth of Jesus to Mary running under this because of the use of the word annunciava. That word is so loaded in the text, it almost screams out to us. And if you are a medieval Christian, you would see that word jump off the page. The Annunciation is the moment when the angel comes to Mary and says, basically, God chose you to have the Savior of the world, and Mary willingly accepts her fate. You wouldn't see that word as a medieval Christian without knowing the kind of infernal twist that is going on on the very basis of the Jesus story. Then they woke up, Ugolino goes on, and the time approached when our meal was usually brought up to us. We were awfully afraid because of our dreams. That's when I heard the nails being driven into the door down at the base of that horrible tower. That's when I looked at the face of my children without saying a word. I didn't cry. I turned to stone inside, but they cried. And my little Ansem said, you look so weird, father. What's up? This is a reference to another parable that Jesus tells. It's found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. And I would actually like to read this to you. Suppose one of you had a friend and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, don't bother me. The door's already been locked and my children are in bed with me. They can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will finally indeed get up and give him whatever he needs. That parable is all about persistence and the persistence of the knocking. And we have that in this story. The nails in the door are reminiscent of the knocking on the door in this parable. The man asks for bread. The children here are asking for bread. The man is in bed in the parable with his children. Here, Ugolino is in the tower with his children. In fact, What Jesus eventually will come down to say is nobody, when they get asked for bread, hands them a stone. What happens here? Ugolino turns to stone. Does he give his children bread? No. Now, you might say he cannot. 
But I would also say there is clearly an infernal twist on New Testament thematics underneath this passage, passing on. Even then, I didn't cry, nor offer a reply all that day and the following night until the sun shone on the world again. The moment a few rays of light shone into that sorrowful cell, I could see my own face stamped in their four faces. I chewed on my hands out of grief. And they, thinking I did what I did because I wanted something to eat. Oh, now listen to the Eucharist, the meal in which the priest turns the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, or for Protestants, the moment in which the bread and wine are consecrated as a remembrance of Jesus's death. I chewed on my hands out of grief, and they, thinking I did what I did because I wanted something to eat, stood up all at once and said, Father, We'd have a lot less pain if you just eat us. <laughs> my gosh, you can see it, right? There is this awful perversion of the basic Christian sacrament going on here. And indeed, if he were to have eaten his children, he could have potentially lasted for a while, at least, up in the tower. He might have been saved. These children, without a doubt, are Christ figures. They're basically saying, take, eat, this is our body, <laughs> just as Christ does in the Gospels. They are Christ figures. They're concerned for their father. They're concerned for their father's salvation, and they offer themselves up, their lives up, to save his. If that's not a Jesus reference, what is? That's why, Ugolino says, to spare them more grief, I calm myself down. It doesn't seem as if you should turn away from the sacrifice. Now, no, listen, I'm not saying that Ugolino should eat his children. What I'm saying to you is in the New Testament perversion of Christian theology that's going on here, Ugolino turns down the sacrifice. And if you think about that, not from a father-son realism claim, but from a theological claim, now you can see Ugolino damned. He is offered the body as a sacrifice, and he turns it down. It would be as if for a Christian, you're offered the body of Christ at the Eucharist, and you say, no thanks. He calms them down, and then he offers his invective. Oh, hard earth, why did you not open wide to swallow us? And it's, again, we talked about this two episodes ago. It's hard to see that as anything but a secular plea. And notice this secular plea with all this Jesus talk surrounding it. All this bit about parables and Eucharist and Jesus dying on the cross and the veil of the temple, all floating around this, and then a completely secular cry. The story goes on. After we'd gotten to the fourth day, Gatto threw himself at my feet saying, my father, why won't you help me? A very close reference to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27 verse 46 or the Gospel of Mark chapter 15 line 31. One of the last things Jesus ever says on the cross, he's hanging there dying and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a ringing echo of that cry, thus making the child even more of a Christ figure and making Ugolino a perversion of God. This is the father 
turning away from the children. And inside of a Christian rubric, this is the Christ dying and the father turning his back, which is in fact central to Christian theology. God the Father does let God the Son die in the Trinitarian theology. But at the same time, here it is placed in the mouth of a sinner in hell. After that, Ugolino says, he died. And as sure as you see me right now, I watched the other three fall one by one between the fifth and sixth days. At that point, utterly blind, I started groping over their corpses and calling for them for two days, even though they were dead. That's when fasting had more power than grief. We've talked about this line already, but I just want to bring up an interesting point about the line, that's when fasting had more power than grief. This lion was not considered ambivalent or difficult until the mid-19th century. It's in an article by the Dantista Francesco de Sanctis in 1869 that for the first time some sort of ambivalence is posited into this line. The notion that Ugolino ate his children, it doesn't even come up amongst the early commentators. The assumption is he died of starvation. The pathos is groping over their bodies. It's not until the mid-19th century that, in fact, this notion of cannibalism arises in the passage. But maybe there are other ways to think about this. For example, he says that's when fasting, and remember, he does say fasting, not starvation. That's when fasting had more power than grief. Fasting is a prime Christian ritual. Monks in caves fast. Penitence fast. It's often given as penance for sins to fast. Catholics traditionally fast on certain days of the week, Fridays, meatless Fridays, or fasting before the Eucharist, or fasting before Good Friday. This is a typical and sacred Christian ritual. And I can tell you that in a Christian context, I'm not saying this about me as a human, in a Christian context, fasting can never have more power than grief. Fasting is a prime way to mortify the flesh in order to find the salvation of God. There is no way in Christian theology that fasting can ever have more power than grief. He turns away at the end of the passage and sinks his teeth, well, his eyes roll up in his head, and sinks his teeth into Ruggieri's skull and holds it tight like a dog with a bone. And this is one last passing New Testament reference. And this may be the most ironic. In Matthew chapter 15, about the middle of the chapter, a Canaanite woman comes up to Jesus. Now, this would be not a Jew, but a woman who practices an alternate religion. And she comes up to Jesus and she says, my daughter is demon possessed. Can you save her? And Jesus says to her rather sternly, I came to save the children of Israel. I didn't come for you, the Canaanite woman. She, you know, I, I'm here to basically lead the Jews to their salvation. And you, you're from another ethnic group and another religious practice, and I didn't come from you. And she 
looks at him and says the famed line, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. He then turns back to her and says, because of your great faith, your daughter is healed. I see here a final reference to this moment in which someone is eating the crumbs off the master's table, or in this case, Ugolino does get a bone. Why do I say that? I say that because of a point that Martinez and Durling make about this passage. And let me just give you the quote that they say about this passage. God validates Ugolino's moral outrage by using Ugolino's hatred as the instrument for the punishment of Ruggieri. I might even change that a bit and say God validates Ugolino's rage, not just his moral outrage. Ugolino is the mechanism of Ruggieri's punishment. And while Ugolino is a disgusting figure gnawing on the head of another, there is a way in which he is the instrument of God's justice on Ruggieri, which means he is a dog getting the crumbs off the table or the bone off the table, which means suddenly he is the Canaanite woman or there is something validating about Ugolino or there is more than meets the eye here. There may be positive and negative attributes to Ugolino's speech, not only as a perversion of the New Testament, but finally itself as a Christian indictment of the church. Because this is where we're headed. Is this what's gnawing the church? (laughs) Is corruption gnawing the church? Is the church's attempt at political power, which is being expressed through its use of figures like Count Ugolino, is this what's eating it up, gnawing at it, chewing its brains out? And the answer for Dante is yes. This is the church getting involved in political matters of Pisa. This is the church getting involved in political matters on the Italian peninsula. This is the church mucking it up across the Italian peninsula. This is what's gnawing the church for Dante. And in the end, Ugolino, as despicable as he might be, is indeed an instrument of God's justice on a completely corrupt, a willfully corrupt church who does nothing but use landed warlord families to chase other people down into submission to their not just religious will, but their political will. Do you see that this speech is suddenly more complicated and suddenly its place is more complicated because you know it twists Jesus's theology. You know it twists Jesus's ethics. You know it parodies the Eucharist. And yet, at the same time, it expresses that which is gnawing the church's brains out. And one more point. This is the heaviest concentration of New Testament references we have yet to see in comedy. We have never seen this thick a thicket of 
Christian New Testament references from the Bible until now in Ugolino's speech, and this is truly endemic to Dante's art. It's at the center of Dante's art. We are being given hundreds of references here to the New Testament. Well, okay, maybe not hundreds, but dozens. Let's not overstate it, right? Okay, dozens of references to the New Testament here because we are only steps away from Purgatorio. We are only lines away from Purgatorio. We are just about to exit the 33rd canto and enter the 34th and last canto of Inferno. And part of the last canto of Inferno will be our ascent up to Purgatory. We are getting very close. And Dante is starting to drop lots of New Testament references. Remember, I told you long ago in this podcast that this seems to be part of the heart of Dante's art. That is, he lays the ground with lots of hints before he drops the main subject. Well, this is it. He is seeding the ground with lots of New Testament hints all as we now begin to get closer and closer to purgatory and everyone on purgatory will be saved. It's just a question of whether they can do enough penance for their sin. And the answer is always yes. You can always do enough penance for your sin. Everyone we meet after Canto 34 of Inferno is redeemed. As we approach the very end of Inferno, we start to get a thicket of New Testament references. Sure enough, that's Ugolino's place in theology, in New Testament theology, and maybe more about his place in the damnation of Inferno. Complicated stuff all around. We're going to have one final episode coming up next, kind of a final assessment of Ugolino before we pass beyond him. I'm actually going to draw the passage out to the big condemnation of Pisa because I think it's important to see it, to understand Ugolino's final place and give a final assessment to him. To get there, subscribe to this podcast, rate it, do all those things. I always say this. I know, it's so boring. If I were listening to this podcast, I'd skip over this part. (laughs) But okay, please, give it a rating, give it a comment. That would be so brilliant. Check me out on my website, Mark Scar or on social media under my own name, Mark Scarborough. I'd love to connect with you there. And otherwise, come back. One more episode on Ugolino and then the final descent to the center of the world. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.